This is the second talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues. It is titled Humility, recorded December 10, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Last month we talked about courage, and this month we're going to talk about humility. So what is humility? It's uh, very misunderstood in our culture today at least uh, as it's used spiritually. Uh, first of all, people think of humility as groveling before our betters. They have some sort of uh, social uh, aristocratic notion of this that's this carryover from uh, feudalism and stuff, where you're humble before the king or the nobles or whatever. And as we'll see, a certain amount of self-disparagement, if you like, uh, can be used on a spiritual path in very specific situations as an antidote to pride. But this idea of groveling before something is, is uh, not at all what the essence of humility is about from a spiritual point of view. Uh, the other thing is, in our culture, we tend to associate the word humility with humiliation, and indeed they do share the same root. But humiliation is something very different than humility. In fact, humil humiliation never results from humility. Humiliation results from injured pride. So if there's true humility, if you have true humility in presence, you cannot suffer humiliation because there's no pride to be injured. And this brings us really to uh, the specific, if you like, vice that humility addresses. Uh, it's considered a vice in, uh, it's termed that way in the Christian uh, tradition, but in all traditions, pride is an <laughs> obstacle to enlightenment, an obstacle to the truth. And why? Because pride is a manifestation of self. It's a specific form in which your, your sense of a, being a separate entity, I, subject self uh, manifest to you. You can see it very clearly. And from a mystic's point of view, this is based on a delusion. Because from a mystic's point of view, there is no self. And so humility, the practice of humility, dispels this delusion because it is based on reality. There is no self. So we might say that uh, humility is not really a ultimately a, a positive quality. It's not a, a, a specific feeling or anything like that. It is, in fact, the absence of something. Humility is simply the absence of pride, pride being a particular manifestation of self. So uh, as Catherine of Siena, one of the great Christian mystics, says, in self-knowledge, then, thou wilt humble thyself, seeing that in thyself thou dost not even exist. So she very specifically connects humility, humbleness, the spiritual practice of it, with a recognition, a self-knowledge, that there is no I in there, there is no self to be proud of or about. The full realization, complete realization, that there really is no I, no self in here. Nothing to be born, nothing to die, nothing to be a victim, and so on, is what enlightenment 
liberation, self-realization, and as we call it, the center gnosis is all about. Gnosis is a Greek term, and it means direct experiential knowledge of reality. It's the term that uh, Jesus used, or at least that the uh, the Greek, uh, the New Testaments in the original Greek use to describe Jesus's teaching about know the truth and it will make you free. The the root of know there in the Greek is gnosis. Know this truth. What truth? There is nothing but God, as the Christians would put it, and the Sufis would put it, and the Jews would put it. There is only the great Tao, as the Taoists would put it. There is only Brahman, as the Hindus would put it. There is only Buddha nature, as the uh, Buddhists would put it. This is why uh, the Buddha taught, the perfect one has won complete deliverance through the extinction, fading away, disappearance, rejection, and getting rid of all opinions and conjectures of all inclinations to the vain glory of I and mine. Uh, Lali Shwari, she was a great uh, saint of uh, Kashmir of the 16th, uh, 14th century, I'm sorry. She writes, eradicate your name and any trace of separateness. Then only Lali and nothing but Lali exists at all. And the Hasidic master Menahem Nahum insisted, he who wants to draw the true life of God into him must first put to death his natural self, which has been with him since birth. Now, notice, it's very important for us in our culture to notice, this isn't a teaching that there is something evil about being selfish in the sense that God doesn't approve of your being selfish. This is a teaching about the truth of your situation, the reality. The reality, the hidden reality that we do not see, we do not experience. We can say it's evil only because it causes suffering. And from a mystic's point of view, the very root of suffering is this ignorance about our true nature and this delusion that we are some sort of self, that then we cling to it and we have to protect and defend and we get frightened of and so forth. So, as all these mystics have indicated, the whole spiritual path is really not about acquiring anything. It's not about enhancing any self. It's not about acquiring more uh, intellectual knowledge. It's not about acquiring even spiritual experiences. It's certainly not about acquiring uh, ESP or extraordinary powers or anything like that. It's about a relinquishment and a divestment of something. It's about a getting rid of something, getting rid of a, some misperception we have, something that veils this reality from us. Uh, Shankara, one of the great Hindu mystics, said, ignorance fills the mind. It's a very different idea of ignorance uh, from a mystical point of view than we normally think of it. Because we normally think of ignorance as the absence of something. I, I don't know. I don't know nothing about physics. We're ignorant of physics. But Shankar's pointing out something else, that actually our ignorance is, from a mystical point of view, is a, a, a kind of a thing, although it's an illusory thing. So we're, uh, the whole spiritual path is about getting rid of, becoming naked, divesting ourselves of, and of what? Of all these 
things, uh, delusions, uh, misperceptions that make us think we are a separate self. It's also, in that sense, a path of purification. It's purifying not only the mind, but the heart. It's purifying the emotions, the thoughts, the sense of will, all aspects of our being, wherever there's this, this trace of self, this, this sense of a, a selfhood arises, it's about seeing that and purifying it through insight, through seeing what is the true nature here. So uh, this is done not by making some general resolve to be selfless. You know, New Year's is coming up. And some of you might think, well, good, New Year's, I'll just resolve to be selfless. Well, it's be interesting to try that. You'll see very quickly it, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't be done that way. The the whole um, sense of a self is a conditioned sense that we've been uh, at least born with or, or since the time of our birth. And in many traditions, uh, this is a condition that has happened over uh, many lives. Even if we don't think of specifically like many lives, like a soul hopping around from life to life, we can think of in an evolutionary sense, a genetic kind of conditioning, a deep cosmic conditioning. So we can't get rid of it with just some resolve. The way we uh, uh, carry out this relinquishment, this divestment, is through practices. And one of the practices is humility. Humility is specifically a practice. So, where do we begin? Well, Theophane the Recluse, who is a, a, a great um, Eastern Orthodox Christian mystic, writes, Humility is acquired by acts of humility. Now, it's very important to, th- to keep this in mind, because, uh, again, especially in our culture, at least this was my experience, we hear about virtues, like to be courageous, to be humble, to be whatever, and we don't realize that this is something that you uh, put into practice through specific acts, through really watching and doing. It's not something you just sort of admire from afar. So, what sort of acts? Well, for most people... The first kind of humility you have to cultivate is intellectual humility. Before we can learn anything, we have to admit that we're ignorant of it. There's a wonderful Zen story that (laughs) illustrates this. A Harvard professor goes to um, visit a Zen master in Japan, and uh, he's... uh, his first trip to Japan, but he studies Zen uh, for many years, and the uh, the Zen master grants him an interview, and he comes in, and the Zen master's sitting at the little table, and he's got some a pot of tea and two little cups, and the uh, Harvard professor comes in and sits opposite him, and the Zen master pours him each some tea, and they start sipping their tea, and the Harvard professor starts talking. And he starts telling the Zen master everything he knows about Zen. He's going on, he's quoting the great Zen texts and so forth and so on. And this goes on. They, they finish the first cup of tea and the Zen master starts pouring the second cup. And he starts pouring the professor's cup and it gets to the top and he keeps pouring. And the cup starts running over and running over. And the professor isn't quite sure what's going on, but it starts running down the table. And, and finally the professor says, stop, stop, it's full. And the Zen master says, yes. He says, this is like your mind. You can't learn anything about Zen because your mind is so full of all these intellectual ideas about it. So this is uh, pointing to what is necessary, humility. This Zen, this Harvard professor lacked humility. He thought he knew it all. 
It's also very important. Uh, intellectual hu humility is very important because our minds are so used to thinking that knowledge is something that is purely intellectual. That if we understand something intellectually, then we have knowledge, we have truth, we know something. Spiritual insights and ultimately gnosis itself are not intellectual knowledge. The Tibetans have a, a very nice technical term for this. It's a non-conceptual cognition. There's a mouthful. It's a cognition. It is a form of knowing. It's Mysticism is not just about a lot of feelings. It's a form of insight, of knowing, but it's not conceptual. It bypasses concepts. It's unmediated knowledge. Most of our knowledge is mediated by ideas, by concepts. It's a direct a kind of uh, insight that's much more akin to experience. So you'll often find mystics talking about in terms of an experience. An immediate aha kind of uh, uh, recognition of something. And the path is built up of little insights, and ultimately the, uh, the, the final absolute insight that, gee, there really is no self. So we have to be very careful. It's not a question of throwing out our, our intellect and our minds and our thoughts and ideas. They're very useful for certain things in life, for many things in human life. You can't uh, balance your uh, checkbook without your intellectual mind and so forth. Very useful, but it, ha it has its place, and, and we have to know its place on a spiritual path and keep it in its place. Even, I must say, the intellect can lead you in a spiritual sense, usually in a negative sense. You can use the intellect to question uh, ideas you have, which we're going to get to in a moment. Uh, but ultimately, it, the mind then just is leading you to the point where you become interested in doing the practices in order to have these sorts of direct insights. So, you have a lot of intellectual pride, as I did when I started my spiritual path. If you think you know it all, uh, then you have to deal with that directly. And one of the best ways to deal with it is to really sit down and uh, examine what you think you do know about reality, about truth, about yourself. Because uh, mysticism goes beyond even your most fundamental notions about reality, things you take most for granted. It's not that they aren't useful in dealing uh, in a social situation and so forth, but are they? is this the ultimate truth? And so it requires a kind of philosophical inquiry about your own beliefs. You don't have to be a, go to school and become a great philosopher or learn how to think uh, you know, in the formal terms of logic to do that. It's simply a matter of trying to sort out what do you really believe and then why? Because your parents told you so, because everybody around you believes it. What makes you think this is true? Al-Ghazali was a great Sufi, uh, wrote a little uh, pamphlet about his experience with this. It's called The Confessions of Al-Ghazali. It's one little pamphlet. It's also contained in a larger booklet called The Faith and Practice of Al-Ghazali, if you're interested in checking out in the library. And he describes how at a certain point uh, in his own life, he started to doubt uh, the, the creed, that, uh, the Islamic creed he was brought up with, the dogmatic creed. And this was very disturbing to him. Then what was true? And he conducted a systematic investigation. He said, well, in his times, and this was in, I don't know, about the 13th century or something, uh, knowledge was supposedly held by four classes of uh, scholars, if you like. There were theologians, <laughs> there were philosophers, 
uh, and they were physicists, Aristotelian sort of physicists. And he examined their theories and so forth very carefully, and he decided none of them could give him certainty. Now, only the Sufis could give him certainty because they promised this experiential kind of knowledge. You would know for yourself. You wouldn't just have to rely on intellectual ideas. So he decided to go off and join the Sufis, and that's how he started on his path. So this kind of initial inquiry into what you really believe uh, and why, is, uh, for some people, is very important. For me, uh, I was a hard-headed, materialist, realist sort of person, and uh, I had this notion that I grew, uh, absorbed from uh, my culture around me growing up that uh, the world was as Newtonian physics described it, little billiard balls bouncing around and uh, so forth. And a very important uh, book that I read on my path was The Tao of Physics, which uh, Fritjof Capra, maybe some of you have read it. And what it showed me was, not that it made me understand quantum mechanics, uh, it was years later and some very intensive studying that I have some inkling of what quantum mechanics is about, but it did show me that these ideas I was holding on to about how the world was, these materialist ideas, were uh, no longer scientific. They were not supported by science. And so uh, my intellectual pride had been, well, I'm... You know, I'm a, a scientific kind of guy. I mean, this is what science says. And uh, literally, a group like this, I would have dismissed as uh, a bunch of people trying to escape from reality. And I would never have been caught dead in a group like this 14, 15 years ago. So it was this kind of uh, pursuing this and studying saying and saying to myself, well, you know, with these ideas you hold, they're outdated. They're obsolete. They're from the 19th century. You don't know what you're talking about. So this opened me up more to uh, new ideas and then ultimately to a way that transcends ideas, a way to truth that transcends ideas. Uh, it's very important in this sort of inquiry, though, that we do not fall into uh, a, a what you might call a existential pride that many modern thinkers do. Uh, they recognize there's no absolute truth in ideas and theories and so forth. And so they take this as a sign of their maturity. Well, there is no absolute truth. And then they look down at, uh, for instance, fundamentalists and so forth, people who believe in dogmas, because they're so mature, they recognize that it's all relative and so forth. First of all, uh, that in itself is an absurdity. Uh, to say that, uh, that there is no certainty, uh, you just have to ask yourself the question, are you certain about that? Well, if you're certain about it, then that's a contradiction. If you're not certain about it, perhaps there is some certainty. Mystics claim there is certainty. They don't ask you to believe it, but they claim you can find certainty. Simone Weil, who was a great uh, Christian mystic of, of this century, who was also, by the way, uh, very uh, steeped in, uh, in both science and philosophy, writes, In what concerns divine things, belief is not fitting. Only certainty will do. Anything less than certainty is unworthy of God. Very interesting. This is also a, 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 a criticism of dogmatic belief, just to believe a creed. No, you have, to, you have to find for yourself, and it's your responsibility to find for yourself some form of certainty, if there is such a thing. Once intellectual pride is overcome, or if you don't have much of it to begin with, you can skip a lot of this, uh, you can proceed on faith. 
And again, faith here is a dynamic form of faith. It's not belief. It's the exact same kind of faith you would have. You submit to any teacher to learn something. Uh, a violin uh, maestro, if you want to learn the violin or something. You don't know how to play the violin. You have faith that this person can teach you how to play the violin. And you'll test that faith as you go. You know, if after you've been studying violin for the for this person for five years, you're not learning anything, you, I would suggest go get another teacher. Something's wrong here. The second thing uh, that most people have to cultivate is humility with respect to others. And this is because the experience of I, the sense of self, is not just an intellectual conviction by any means. It runs much, much deeper. It's really a kind of a psychological image, if you like, that we uh, carry around with us. And it's a blueprint for patterning all our emotions, our thoughts, our moods, and everything gets patterned and gets referred to this sense of I, this sense of self in there. It's actually not even a thing. To say a thing is misleading, this pattern is something that is constructed in an ongoing way. It's something that's actively being constructed all the time. It's not something that's sort of just there. Uh, you can see this clearly in, in most of you in your own experience, just an ordinary experience. For instance, if you are doing something that you are really absorbed in and like, uh, let's say you go to a, a great movie or a great play or something, and you really get lost in it, you find there's very little sense of self. Or let's say if you like to dance or you like some uh, sport or something, and you go out and you're having a great time, you're dancing all night, and why? You feel wonderful because there's very little sense of self especially if you're really into it. If you go out on the dance floor and you don't like to dance and somebody drags you out on the dance floor and you don't think you're very good and you get all embarrassed and you start to blush and you start to stumble around, you know, and step on your partner's toes and all that, then look, you see from your own experience how much suffering there is. Why? Because there's this tremendous sense of self. Everybody's looking at me. Everybody's judging me, right? So th this sense of self isn't something that's sort of solid mass that's with us all the time. It comes and goes. But the, our minds are constantly reconstructing it. And you can see this quite clearly by watching your mind. Literally, it's, it's very, it happens very much like uh, the way a soap opera is uh, constructed. There are no characters there. But when you turn on the television set, the characters come to life. They're being constructed in the moment. The actors are reading the lines, the, the, the script that some writer wrote, and they all sort of come to life for you, and then when you turn off the set, they vanish. And your own mind is just like a, uh, it's like a screenwriter, a dramatist, who keeps writing up these little scripts, and you see yourself in the script. Oh, there's me, and there's so-and-so, and there's my boss, and there's my spouse, and, you know, whatnot. So the way to get to know what you think of, of as self, and the way to get to know this pattern is to watch your own mind closely. We don't, by the way, it's very important here, we don't transcend self uh, simply by ignoring our experience. Uh, again, the Tibetans are very astute about this. They point out, before you can transcend self, you have to get to know what this self is that you think you are, and see it clearly. You can, uh, through certain kinds of meditation, get a transcendent feeling where you transcend self. That sense of self almost completely vanishes. 
But if you haven't actually examined your own experience, if you haven't seen in the moment the emptiness of this uh, delusion of self, then what happens? When your meditation is over, you come down, you go off to work, and you're right back into the drama again. This is why it's very important that spiritual practice, mystical practice, is something that's conducted in everyday life. It's about the reality of our situation, moment to moment. That's what it's about investigating. All right, so, to, uh, to cultivate humility with respect to others. The, our, this sense of self is, uh, to a large extent, socially conditioned. That's why in different cultures people have uh, generally different kinds of senses of self. And uh, it's reinforced externally through our own comparing ourselves with other selves. So, you know, we look around and uh, we look at other people and we say, oh, gee, am I as beautiful as they are? Am, am I as wise as they are? Am I as smart as they are? As wealthy? Whatever it is you're judging. And if the answer to those questions is yes, that's pride. Oh, then you feel good. See, now you're better than somebody else in some respect. Again, this is something, you know, that happens uh, almost at a subconscious level. It happens very fast and very automatically. So uh, it's something you really have to pay attention to to see how it, how it actually happens. Uh, good situations are when you meet somebody else for the first time. Let's say at a party or something, you're gonna, some of you are gonna go to, uh, you know, home for dinner or dinner parties or whatever over the holidays here or be invited out and people are introduced to you and watch your mind at that moment. Watch how it judges other people. Very lightning fast. Often there isn't even a, a direct reference to I. There's an implicit reference in the judgment. Oh, look at that person's table manners. Look how sloppy they are. They never reference to I, but the, the, the implication is, oh, I'm, I'm much better table manners than that person. Do you know what I mean? That person talks too much. You watch your mind sitting there around the dinner table. Oh, they just blabber on and on, and they say stupid things. I'm much more intelligent is the implication. <laughs> you can really see this. This is, what, uh, this is why Theophane said humility is learned by acts of humility. So what can we do when we see this? Here's Manaham Nahum's advice. Be a very humble spirit before every person. When you see a wicked person, say in your heart, even he is greater than I. And Sister Magdalena, who is another Eastern Orthodox mystic, says, Regard every man as better than you are, for without this thought a man is far from God, even though he performs miracles. Uh, now, what they're suggesting here is a specific practice. It's an antidote when you find your mind... Uh, judging other people and, and putting them down, stop a minute and substitute a thought about yourself that reverses that. This isn't an ultimate thing that you are uh, literally, ultimately unworthy or not as worthy as anybody else. It's, it's a device, an antidote to interrupt that uh, process of uh, disparaging judgment of others. And Al-Ghazali has a wonderful uh, example of this uh, because it's, it's, it can proceed quite analytically. And he says, uh, he gives a, a whole string of examples. I can only remember a few off the top of my head. But one is, he says, for instance, if you meet a child and you think, oh, I'm something much uh, more mature than the, the child, he says, stop and think. That's true now, but that child may grow up to be a genius. So you have no business feeling superior to the child. 
if you run across an uneducated person, uh, you might stop it. You might find yourself feeling, oh, I'm superior to that person because I'm educated and they're illiterate or whatever. And so stop and think. Where do you get off feeling superior to that person? The fact that you're educated mean, means God's going to demand more of you. You have more responsibility here. That person has an excuse in, in some sense. And he says, he's speaking as a Muslim here, he says, even if you meet an infidel, he says, don't judge yourself as superior to that person, because who knows? You may fall into doubt and, and lose your religion and die an infidel, and that person may be converted and die a great Muslim. So you don't know what's going to happen. So these are little devices you have to adopt for your own life. When you start finding yourself judging other people, look into that. Why, you, why do you feel you're so superior? Start becoming aware of your own faults and your own relative uh, foibles and so forth. And become aware of them in that act of judgment. That's how uh, humility is acquired through acts of humility. Another uh, external reinforcement of uh, pride is praise. And Manaham Nahum advises about praise. He says, keep away from having your head turned. Accept not a drop of human praise. Praise that you receive from people is to be considered a great liability. Those who speak ill of you are in fact doing you a great favor. <laughs> No, there's a real reversal of our normal values here. Again, the reversal is the practice. It's an antidote. It's, it's not that uh, there's some ultimate um, value in, in having people speak ill of you. But why does he say it's doing you a great favor? Well, for the same reason we talked about earlier. When people speak ill of you, when they're blaming you, that sense of self comes to the fore, doesn't it? When they're praising you, there's a, a sense of self, but there's no suffering in it, and so you just sort of wallow in it, <laughs> you know, you glow in it. There's no, there's no motive to go examine this. But when people, uh, someone, uh, your boss at work starts coming over and saying, you know, you're really sloppy with this, uh, I don't know, paperwork or something, you get all uptight, there's the sense of self right there, and the sense of self as a cause of suffering. And so here you can see, right here in your own experience, how this sense of self is the root cause of suffering. And it gives you an opportunity to look into this self. What is this self? If you look in, you'll find all sorts of things. You'll find thoughts running around about, uh, where is my boss getting off saying this? He's a, he's a dummy anyway, or whatever. And you'll find your muscles tight. You'll find sensations, tightness in the chest and whatnot. Maybe you'll find your mouth has gotten dry. Uh, all sorts of things. But you'll never find any self. You just find phenomena. All this ephemeral phenomena. So it's a wonderful opportunity. In the Tibetan tradition, uh, I've heard that uh, monks at a certain point, these young monks studying the, the Dharma, uh, and they're all living in a monastery and they're all practicing compassion with each other and they're all being very nice to each other. At some point, they have to go around and ask their friends to insult them so they can do this practice. So they, they as part of the practice, they, you know, would you please insult me? And we laugh about this, but even, it's interesting, you try it sometime, even if you know it's a game and you ask your friend to insult you and they start saying, uh, yeah, Galen, you know, you really, you just don't make it, you know, I mean, you've been doing this Dharma practice for years and years and you're complete, oh, there's a little, <laughs> you know, even though he knows I'm kidding him or I'm, you know, you see, it's very interesting how this is, how this attachment to self is, how deeply rooted it is. 
Here's how Lao Tzu describes the sage, the person who's free from attachment to self, and because free from attachment to self, free of praise and blame. Therefore the sage benefits them, yet extracts no gratitude, accomplishes his tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. Is this not because he does not wish to be considered a better man than others? The sage has no desire to be considered better than anybody else. No desire to, to, to get uh, gratitude or to get uh, praise back. <clears throat> it's not, uh, the true sage has no desire because what's the value of that? There's no self in there. There's a marvelous example of this in the news last week. Somebody got a million dollar winning McDonald's game ticket or something and sent it to a children's hospital completely anonymously. Great practice. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great practice to give to get this million dollar winning ticket and give it all to a children's hospital already, but to do it anonymously, so that no one comes and pats you on the back and says, "Mike, what a noble thing you did! That was just what an act of charity." You can you don't have to wait to win a million dollar ticket uh, at McDonald's. Um, Joseph uh, Goldstein tells a wonderful story. Uh, he's an American meditation teacher. He was in India, and uh, he's uh, down at the market buying fruit. And of course, in India, there's you know a lot of beggars. These kids come around, and who are in rags and so forth. And he said, you know, that was something he had to deal with already. I mean, he's going to give everybody everything the first day, and uh, but he worked that out, but he was in the market, he was buying, I think, a mango or something, and he turned around, he just bought this luscious mango, and here's this little beggar boy standing there with his hand out. So, just said, he, well, he looked at the mango, and he looked at the kid, and he thought, what the hell, and he gave him the mango, and the kid took the mango, turned around, and walked away, and he said, not even a smile, not even a little nod of thank you, not even the recognition I had done something. And they said, what a wonderful teaching it was. Because here I, that, this was not true charity. I wanted praise. I wanted, uh, you know, some recognition. I want the self wanted acknowledgement that it was there and it was a good noble self that I had. So even a little situation like that, you see, can be your teacher. And what is the teaching? Humility. Acts of humility. One of the things that we uh, take pride in is our social status or our educational uh, accomplishments or our career accomplishments. Uh, this was certainly true of me. I was started off in Hollywood in the early 70s as a reader, which is a lowly, lowly person on the, on the totem pole there. And in seven years, I was a vice president. And uh, I was quite aware and quite proud of myself of having... Uh, risen so far and being an executive and knowing how to get things done and I was really full of self-pride about this and pride that I knew how to do all this stuff and I had a dream halfway through my path a very important dream those of you who read my book might remember it uh, I called the warehouse dream and in this dream I was uh, uh, with my guide Athena this this woman guide I had and I'm being taken through this enormous warehouse, and there are all these, like, kind of tests, little stations where you line up and you go through some test. The setting was actually very much like um, 
the warehouse that I was in before being shipped off to Vietnam. And if any of you have been in the armed services, uh, you go through uh, these sort of uh, stations. They're not so much tests, but when you're first inducted, you have to go to the the shrink and the doctor, and you have to take these various IQ tests and whatnot. And it was had that same feel to it. And in the dream, I knew how to do all this. And I started rushing ahead. I didn't have to go through all these checkpoints. And the woman said, no, wait. See, all this knowledge you have, uh, this worldly knowledge you have, is not uh, going to avail you he here at all. It's going to mean nothing here at all. And then she steered me to this, this test that we had to uh, go through. It's like a gauntlet. And everybody went through had to choose an affliction. So I chose to be mute. And I start going through this gauntlet, and other people have chosen leprosy and all sorts of things, you know. And everybody starts mocking me. You, this is the gauntlet of people who are mocking you. And they say, you think that's an affliction just to be mute? Look at these other people. That's not an affliction. And it was really tough not to, you know, lash back. And I was thinking inside, gee, this is really difficult. Keep your mouth shut, you know. That's a, a dream about humility, learning humility. And that was the practice for me. And again, this is a practice that you can uh, use in your own life. For instance, a good place to do it, again, during the holidays, is when gossip starts. A lot of gossip is about uh, pride and about uh, various forms of pride. Uh, first of all, being able to tell stories about yourself. Oh, that you did this and you did that, that all make you look good. Or being able to give advice because you're so wise and so you can give advice, usually about people who aren't there. And then everybody else can nod sagely and say, that's what she should do. Yes, indeed. Try in the, in, uh, over the holidays or at some time at the, in those situations to shut up. Don't gossip. Just sit there. See what happens. You'll watch. It's fascinating. This urge, how strong this sense of self is, that it wants to jump in there, give the advice, tell the stories, and so forth. You see, this is what I mean by humility, which is a great virtue, but we can bring it down to earth and we can incorporate it right into our own practice. One of the things that happens on a spiritual path is even spiritual accomplishments become uh, food for spiritual pride. The ego has two basic ways of dealing with spiritual practice. One is resistance. That is just not to meditate, not to do the practices, not to read, just to go along the old habitual pattern. When resistance starts to fail, when it starts to prove futile, the ego has another trick. And the trick the ego now employs is, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be able to interrupt this practice, but I will seize it for myself. So I'll plunge into this practice. I'll become like the greatest meditator in the world. I will become the greatest saint in the world. And it starts to uh, cooperate with your practice. That's good, but it also starts to take credit for it. Oh, look what a great meditator I am. If you ever go on retreat, watch yourself. Or even here, you're a good meditator. And you're sitting here perfectly still, and somebody else next to you is fidgeting, and your mind's saying, oh, okay, I don't have to meditate at all. <laughs> right? Or how virtuous you become. You cut out a lot of things in your life, you simplify your life, you start recycling your garbage and all that, you know, oh, you become very proud of how virtuous you are. And the greatest, my favorite one, is how humble I am. Oh, look how humble I am. I don't, I don't gossip. <laughs> I let people insult me how humble I am. There's a wonderful story of a, a rabbi who... Uh, at the end of the day, he was in temple, all alone in the temple, and um, except for the janitor, who was 
finishing cleaning up. And so the rabbi goes and he starts praying and he starts saying, Oh God, I am nothing. Oh Lord, I am nothing. Oh Lord, I am nothing. Oh Lord, I am nothing. So the janitor finishes his work and he comes and sits down next to the rabbi and he starts saying, Oh Lord, I am nothing. Oh Lord, I am nothing. Oh Lord, I am nothing. And the rabbi looks over and says, Look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> the way to combat this sort of spiritual pride is self-inquiry. And the Sufis have a, uh, a word for this, technical word. Uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but as best I can do, mohasabe. And this is how uh, Dr. Nurbakash describes it. Mohasabe means to be constantly searching into and examining the states and actions of the self. Day by day and hour by hour, one should take account of whatever arises in one's being, whether positive or negative, so as to become aware of the qualities of one's own states. In other words, it's by self-examination that you can get a, a much clearer idea of what's actually going on, and it's this sort of honesty about yourself. Just a real honesty about yourself, to see when <clears throat> you're doing your practice and when you're not doing your practice, when you're being charitable and when you're not being charitable, not to shove your, your spiritual faults, so to speak, under the rug, but just simply being honest and examining and this provides a very good check for the development of this spiritual pride. This is why you find particularly like Christian mystics, great saints writing about what sinners they are and so forth. It's because they're very aware of even the little bits of selfishness that arises in their psyches. Now, it's very also very important, though, to remember that humility is not self-pity, guilt, uh, and wallowing in these sorts of emotions. This is why Theophane the recluse writes, Self-importance is as wily as the devil and cleverly conceals itself behind humble words, settling itself firmly in the heart so that we swing between self-deprecation and self-praise. And notice this. And notice this even if you're not on a spiritual path. This is what most people go through. Uh, they feel up, they feel good, they feel wonderful about themselves, and then they fall into self-pity, and they feel terrible, and they're incompetent, and so forth. It, it doesn't matter. Whether you think you're wonderful or whether you think you're despicable, there's still self in there. And in fact, uh, all this wallowing and how despicable you are is only another way of reinforcing the self. <laughs> oh, I'm so despicable. Oh, I've screwed up. Oh, I'm no good. Oh, I can't do this. It's I, 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 I. So this is just a warning because ultimately humility is not about uh, coming to feel that you're no good and everybody else is wonderful. Those are only just very specific practices when you find that pride arising. Ultimately, humility is about being free of self altogether. Having a, being a selfless. So there isn't uh, either self-pity or self-pride arising. And I'll tell you something else. There's a big secret about humility. When you really start to learn it, and you really start to experience it, which is nothing really than freedom from self, it feels good. It feels wonderful. To be free, or to become, start to become free of all this anxiety about what other people think of me, and what I think of myself, and all this self-judgment, and the judgment of others, is a great relief. 
It's a great burden off your shoulder. And that's a sign of true humility. It has this, this sense of freedom and lightness. This is why Jesus talked about, I am meek and take up my burden because it's light. And my uh, way is easier. And I'm paraphrasing it. There's, in humility you find an ease, a being at ease with yourself and with others. It just cannot be there if there is, on one hand, pride arising, and the other hand, all sorts of, um, uh, you know, self, putting yourself down. So true humility is to be free of that. Then, uh, the fourth thing we do is have to cultivate humility with respect to God, or Brahman, or the great Tao, or the Buddha nature, or the ultimate mystery, or whatever name you want to use for it, the great divine. Because... What stands between you and that is this sense of self. That's it. That's the only thing that stands between you and that. So, being humble before God, if we want to use Christian and Jewish and Islamic terms, really means becoming selfless before God. Emptying yourself of self. And there's certain very specific practices that you can do to get this process going. One of them is bowing. Uh, this is, uh, in, in almost all traditions, there's some form of bowing before the divine. In uh, Islam, uh, there are five prayers a day, and they involve prostrations. Uh, Christians kneel and, and uh, bow their heads when they pray. <laughs> Uh, in Buddhism, there are bowing practices in almost all Buddhist traditions. The, the Tibetans have do things like take on a vow to do a hundred thousand prostrations. Certain Zen traditions, you bow a certain number of times a day in certain situations. Here's what Suzuki Roshi, great Zen master, contemporary Zen master, says about bowing practice, which he instituted uh, for his uh, American students in a particularly um, austere form. Actually, originally, apparently, uh, traditionally in Japan, you were supposed to bow nine times when you walked into the meditation hall or leaving it or some, something to do with the meditation hall. And over the years, it had sort of been reduced to three. So when Suzuki Roshi came to this country, he reinstituted the nine bows. And some of his more advanced American students said, oh, no, no, don't do that. Americans have a hard enough time bowing as it is. And he said, that's why I'm doing it. And here's what he says about it. Bowing helps to eliminate self-centered ideas. This is not so easy. Bowing is a very valuable practice. I never did a, a really strenuous bowing practice, but I did do a little bowing just to see what it was like. And I recommend to you to try it. Just when you're home alone and so forth, just in the middle of the room, get down and bow. See how much self comes up. For most of, at least if you were like me, if you grew up in a sort of sophisticated, you know, Western culture. All sorts of things get you know, this is anti-democratic, you know, this is, uh, I look foolish. What if somebody comes in, you know, to the door and I'm bowing? What am I going to say to them? All sorts of stuff comes up. It's wonderful practice for bringing up this self. Another, uh, another um, way to uh, cultivate humility in the face of the divine is through prayer. Not prayer for anything, like, you know, cars or whatever, or, or even for, uh, well, but even for not even praying for, um, you know, good things to happen to other people, which is, a, which is a good thing to do. But this kind of prayer is the a prayer, in a sense, to lose self. The prayer itself uh, dissolves self. 
The Hasidic masters write about this. As long as you can still say the words, Blessed art thou, by your own will, know that you have not yet reached the deeper levels of prayer. Be so stripped of selfhood that you have neither the awareness nor the power to say a single word on your own. This is an intense prayer practice. This is starting to pray and getting so into the prayer that the prayer is happening spontaneously. It's not that you have any sense that you're praying anymore. The Sufis have a very similar practice called zikr. It's the remembrance of God, and it's a prayer. It's repeating usually the uh, la ilaha illallah, the there is nothing but God, over and over. And they have a wonderful way of saying this. If you continue with this practice, eventually the heart steals the prayer from the tongue. And so it's just uh, it's this murmuring. You have the sense of just this uh, mantra going on, but you're not doing it. This brings us to the great paradox of the mystical path. Because in a relative sense, all these practices you do, including practices of humility, little acts of humility and so forth, they do work. They work to transform your experience. If you stick with them and if you do them over a period of time, and you will find that the more you do them, you become increasingly free of this sense of self. And you, and even when it's still there, you have a different attitude towards it. You no longer is the focal point of your life. You can uh, take a sense of humor about it, for instance. You can say, oh gosh, there's the ego again. You know, it's, it doesn't weigh on you so much. And in that sense, you become free of these anxieties. You become, you're no longer as reactive if people insult you or mistreat you or whatever. And to the extent that you are uh, no longer not so much focused on yourself and there's all this free awareness, let's say, this spaciousness, you become much more open to joy and compassion and love. It's not, those aren't things you have to work at in order to generate. They will naturally arise as you become free of yourself and this tremendous concern we have with ourselves. And then you start to just become aware more of what's around you and you start to take a natural delight in it. But then in the absolute sense, none of these practices work. In the sense that they, none of these practices can, can bring about enlightenment. It's not like you do these practices, and if you do them for 20 years, one day you'll graduate. None of these practices work because, ultimately, there's nothing you can do to attain enlightenment. Because you don't exist. And that's the paradoxical problem here. As long as you think there's something that you can do to become happy to attain some truth, then that very sense of the self and that very activity that arises from it is the obstacle. And in fact, that is what's hiding it all along. One way to put it is you cannot do anything to become enlightened because you are enlightened. Ramana Maharshi used to say, uh, he was a great Hindu mystic of this century, uh, he used to say uh, when people asked him, how do you uh, uh, get to the self, the self of the capitalist, the, the Atman, the Brahman, He'd say, there is no getting to the self. You are the self. Just realize it. There's no getting there. Most of you in this room, uh, there's one command that uh, none of you could obey, even if you wanted to. There's no reason why you'd want to obey my commands, but if you did, and that would be to sit down. You can't. Why can't you? You're all sitting down. 
If I keep saying, if you say to me, teach me how to sit down. I said, you, you can't, there's nothing to, to teach. You're sitting down. Just realize you're sitting down. So what is the point of going through all this then? All these practices and so forth and so on. Well, as I said, in a, in a relative sense, it will bring more joy and peace and calm and love and all that into your life. But ultimately, the point of all these practices is they fail, which is another reason why spiritual pride is so ridiculous. People get so proud at uh, their spiritual progress, and actually, the more they think they're making progress, the, the less they're learning the lesson. None of this works. And it's only when you have exhausted these practices for yourself, when you have come to the end of your rope, when there is nothing more you can think of to do, not only just exhausted uh, spiritual practices, but exhausted all seeking. When you become such a committed spiritual seeker that you've burned your bridges behind you, there's, there's no possibility of going back. If you're only halfway down the path and you think, oh, this isn't working, I think I'll go back to school and I'll become a, a lawyer and, and have a big successful career, then <laughs> you haven't gone far enough on the, on the path. Uh, but I mean, all seeking, you don't, all seeking ends, you don't know what to do. You cannot think, what will I do next? You don't know how to do anything. Ah, then something very interesting happens. This seeking mind stops. This, this devising mind, this yearning, all this stuff that always wants uh, more, that wants to acquire even truth, even spiritual truth and so forth. It wants to get it, it all just stops. And you see, that was the self. It just stops. And in that space is when this gnosis, this realization can happen. It just dawns on you. Oh, this is what it was all along. There was no self here. There was nothing but God here. This is why the Bhagavad Gita says, always and everywhere, acts are done by the states arising in primal matter. That means action happens, just all this is happening. The, the, the Taoists would say this is just the great way is doing this, or Christians would say it's just all by the will of God. It's just all happening. And then it says, a man totally confused in his self-consciousness imagines I act. This is one of my favorite of all teachings, because if you use it as a mirror for how you uh, think of yourself and the world, you'll see how radically different the mystic's view is. And this is not just a philosophical statement. When you uh, watch yourself, you know, performing any tasks and so forth, and how you're, in your mind you think, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. According to the Bhagavad Gita, if that's happening, you're totally confused. You're totally deluded. No one's doing it. Or we could say God is doing it if we want, or the Tao is doing it. When you realize there is nothing you can do, this isn't a put-down saying, you know, because you're not good enough, because there is no you there. There's nothing to be done. Then you arrive at what Seng, Seng San, a great uh, Chinese Zen master, described as, have a mind unified with the way. For the unified mind, in accord with the way, all self-centered striving ceases. 
This is, this is where the path leads you to. It does not lead you to enlightenment. It leads you to realizing that all this, none of this is going to work. Nothing, ever, any, anything you can do. I call this the last stage of the path, so to speak, the stage where the path brings you kenosis, an emptiness. And that's what humility ultimately is all about. That's its essence. This is what St. John of the Cross says about it. When they are brought to nothing, the highest degree of humility, the spiritual union between their souls and gods will be affected. So ultimately, humility, the true practice of humility, is no practice at all. Ultimately, humility is the realization of this um, no-self, nothing there. Anyway, this is, perhaps you can see from this, why humility is really important on a spiritual path. Uh, it, it contains the seed, the essence of the whole practice, the whole path. And I've tried to give you some idea here of uh, how you can actually practice humility in, in little ways. Uh, and not just pay lip service to this, uh, you know, this great spiritual value and think that humility is some general sort of thing that you're going to go around with your head bowed and, and that's going to make you humble. It really requires this watching, watching how your own mind works, watching your own emotions, watching your own states. And it requires, uh, whenever you see pride arising, uh, recognizing that it's pride, recognizing that it's a cause of suffering, and recognizing it's an obstacle. It's an obstacle between you and the truth, and it's an obstacle between you and other beings. Any questions or comments? Yeah. I have one. Oh, several retreats ago, I'm not sure how many, a few years back, uh, and this was after I'd been at the center a number of years, I realized as I was watching my mind how much I, me, mine there was going on all the time. And uh, I spoke about that and, and uh, told you that I was going to try this practice of calling my attention to that I, me, mine, mine. And you also... You gave me a practice to do, a kind of an antidote to it, in addition to the one I was going to use, and that was to uh, uh, say that uh, uh, everything self-liberates. And, and that was very helpful, doing that practice. I think my Catholic practice, too, at the same time I did. Yes, and it's... Um what happens, it's, it's, it's in a practice you shouldn't try and do right away. The first thing is to become aware of your mind and aware of the I, me, mind, and so forth. But then people tend to get into a big conflict and a big battle with their own minds. And then they don't like the fact that I, me, my thoughts are arising. Uh, in fact, they start to uh, think very badly of themselves and they get and fall into the opposite of pride. And they get into a big fight with trying to suppress these thoughts. And they make a resolve not to think this way. And I won't be so judgmental. And I'm, you know, I mean, of course, the mind is a very mechanical thing. It just produces these thoughts. Now, if you watch more closely, if you can watch more closely, you'll see that these thoughts themselves are like a bubble. It means they self-liberate. You don't really have to do anything about them. Just don't buy into them. Just don't cultivate them and just don't build a whole world out of these thoughts. But if you just leave them alone and watch them, here comes a judgment. Let's say, uh, oh, you're at a, a, a party over the holidays and somebody's uh, has sloppy table manners. Let's say you're watching me and you say, oh, 
<laughs> Look at that. He's a, what a boor. Where did he grow up? In a, in a barn or something? Then you become aware of that. No, don't start saying, oh, I have such a judgmental mind. Look, that's more thought with I in it. I have a judgmental mind. Just relax and just let the thought evaporate. Nothing needs to be done. It just self-liberates. So that's a way of not getting into a big fight with yourself and compounding the problem. But first, you do have to become aware of this. I mean, this is a refinement of a practice. And uh, the very first thing is to really become aware of self-knowledge, as Catherine of Siena said. That's the whole key. Self-knowledge is being aware of what's going on with your emotions, your thoughts, your moods. Just becoming aware. Not even doing anything about it at first. Just becoming aware. Sometimes uh, you, you suggested us that we uh, uh, see ourselves as worse than the person we're judging. I found that more and more when I see a behavior, I say to myself or I recognize that in myself. I don't have to make myself worse than. It's just saying, yeah, I remember doing that or... Is that a yes, yes. Uh, this, you know, I said this is an anecdote. I mean, like this... people who kill their their own children. Mm -hmm. I can remember the thought. <laughs> <laughs> Throttle. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 I do honor that. Uh, you know, it's it's overwhelming sometimes. That's a very, very good point. If you can, it, it, just to have a thought, oh, I'm, you know, worse than they are or something, if, it, if it's not connected to some experience, I think it's very mechanical. Mm -hmm. But if you can uh, relate to an experience uh, of your own that is similar, that wipes out the judgment, and it also, uh, it also fosters compassion. That's what compassion is, do you know what I mean? To say, oh, you're just like me, you know what I mean? I'm just like you. Yeah. We're we're peas in the same pot, yeah. yeah. And that's so, yeah. Joel, yeah. I've had experiences with um, like when I'm feeling pride, like I've done something really good. A lot of times when I've felt that way, I find out that what I had pride about was wrong. You know, it's like I, like doing something at work and thinking that I did it really well, and then three weeks later, I screwed it up. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. And that's happened more than a few times. So every time I start to feel pride, I go, aha, we're just screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it shows you how... Uh... Uh, how relative and tentative our own judgments are about things like that. You know what I mean? I mean, here's an example of not only uh, uh, not only having pride be a potential cause of suffering, but the pride itself was completely ill-founded, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this whole thing about pride and also guilt is the other side of the coin here, although most people have more problem with pride, really, than guilt. If you, if you found somebody, you know, who is really steeped in guilt and whatnot, these teachings, the, the practice of humility would not be the most appropriate practice for them. You might want to give them practices they build confidence, for instance, you know, in practice and whatnot. But most people have this uh, pride, this judgmental mind. And uh, in, in watching it and in becoming aware of the pride, whether it's founded or not, one of the things you can see is how much energy goes into this construction we put on events. And, for instance, 
having done a job and then thinking, oh, I did this really well and so forth. And it takes your mind off the actual job itself. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if you just got rid of all that, it's totally unnecessary, and just had your uh, give your attention fully to the job at hand, you would find that the mistakes uh, become eliminated. You know, you become better at the job at hand because you're not all wrapped up about how you're doing. You're simply, you know, doing whatever the job is, and your all your attention, your awareness is on that. So, in a funny way, all this. The constant referring our attention back to ourselves, to the soap opera running around on our head, is constantly taking our attention away from the work that we are trying to perform well. Yeah, yeah. I found family relationships are, are a good place to um, look at humility in terms of people criticizing you. An adolescent son. But there's always, I mean, every day there's always constantly something that comes up that you know, I get criticized for, or, or else I find myself <coughs> critical of the other way on my own. They're messing it up. So it's, it is a really good practice if, if you can remain aware of that. An adolescent son, I imagine, is a very good teacher of humility. <laughs> I was. When I was an adolescent, I was a wonderful teacher of humility. <laughs> All right. Well, if there are no more questions or comments, let's bring the formal part. Of, oh. I just announce it when you're done. Okay. So we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library. And uh, we will see you next Sunday. In the meantime, peace to you all.